When I was a uh, sophomore at Wheaton College, I wrote a paper in which I ripped, I totally ripped on evangelical historian Mark Knoll. In the paper, I talked about how he was a liberal compromiser, how he was trading away the faith for academic respectability. Kapow! That's the paper, by the way, that when I got it back, it had a D minus at the top in red with the words gratuitous gossip underlined with an exclamation point. You know, the irony of having written that paper is that I ended up staying at Wheaton and doing a graduate degree with none other than Dr. Mark Knoll. (laughs) Turns out he's a really nice guy (laughs) who loves Jesus in the church and who, who wants to honor God through his scholarship. Isn't it easy to condemn people you don't know? Or, I mean, it is so easy to do that. It's easy to condemn groups of people, especially groups of people, um, Fox News these days, I don't watch a lot of Fox News. I know some of you do. It's, it's okay if you do or okay if you don't. But So one of their beefs these days on Fox News are, the, are the, the welfare queens, the people who are on food stamps getting lobster and living high on the hog, and they're, they're really going after that. Moochers is a word that keeps coming up. Um, and so it's a group of people, you know, and so we, oh, man, lazy, da 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 I was just at the distribution day for the first time in a long time at the Jessamine County Food Pantry. I know a lot of those folks are also probably on food stamps. My takeaway at the end of the day, based on their appearance, based on how they were dressed, based on the cars, at least the people who had cars and weren't trying to put all the food on a bicycle or moped, was, I'm so blessed. (laughs) This 1998 Mercury Sable is awesome. (laughs) So awesome. Um, And so... It's easy to condemn entire groups of people. It really is, culturally. There's no better place to do that than, let's be honest, it's easy, nowhere is it easier to condemn entire groups of people than on social media. Right? So I'm going to say that statement again, only when I'm done, I want you to say a really robust amen. Nowhere is it easier to condemn entire groups of people than on social media. Yeah. I love the little Facebook memes that, have, that are targeting young people that voted for Obama, right? You've seen the memes, you know, how's it feeling now, whoop, loser, you know, and then, then, then there's the memes all about teachers and sometimes, you know, Common Core and how teachers blah, 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 and a, a few months ago, a few months ago, someone really lit into firefighters. It was awesome, you know, I... Every time I go out to the restaurant, it seems like the guys are there, and they've got the fire truck, and they're running that truck on my money. It's my gas in that truck, blah, 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 blah. Well, then a firefighter wife caught the comment, and then it started. It went nuclear, as they say in the South, right quick. <laughs> well, let me tell you what they pay my husband. Okay, so it's easy. We do the, It's funny that we condemn people and we condemn groups of people and that we do so so easily. Um, in my 20s, in my 20s, I was a lot more opinionated than I am now. Um, those of you that are older, I see you nodding your heads. Yes, that is so true. Um, and Jenny and I went to this dinner that was part of our Sunday school class at the church we belonged to at the time, the purple class. And it was at somebody's house. I know they had the classes arranged by color. There was purple, orange, and I think green. And we chose purple. It's the color of royalty. 
So, but it was us and a bunch of 40 and 50-somethings, which at the time seemed really old. <laughs> and so we, we're, at, we're at this uh, purple class dinner at this couple's house, and all the members of the class are there. And at my end of the table, I just went on a little mini tirade on, on uh, 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 lawyers. And so I was like, uh, you know, lawyers are greedy. Lawyers are what's wrong with this country. Lawyers you know, or driving up the cost for everything, you know, lawyers are evil, you know. And then it got to the point where we kind of talked about what we did for a living. <laughs> oh, you know there where this is going. That is so awesome. Yes, the middle-aged 50-something man, I was sitting here, he was literally across from me right there. He says, well, Max, would it surprise you to know that I'm a lawyer? Yes. <laughs> it got better. Oh, I'm not just a lawyer. I'm a personal injury lawyer. I got an education that day on how you can get injured and have your whole life ruined and da 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 da. As, as, as the saying goes, I had a large dose of humble pie that day pontificating about lawyers. You would think, you would think that this kind of quick condemnation, quick condemning would have no place in the church in America. And, and you'd be wrong. Um, it's been said many times that the church is the only place where we shoot our wounded. And it's, it's true. There are far, far too many churches in America where condemnation is like the modus operandi. Um, if you are sexually active and not married, <gasps> ooh, no baby shower for you, honey. You know, it's the way it used to be. Or in the 1970s, I remember if you were divorced, that was like such a big stigma. I mean, you would have to kind of do a pre-interview to, to find out if you could just come and sit in the congregation. Um, some churches, you can really be on the outs and you can really be condemned if you're, shh, don't tell anyone. I know. They will like it. You know, you'll say, if you were to admit, I voted for Obama, they will sit you down and go, did you know that there is something separating you and the Lord? It's called sin. And then they'll go through the four steps and try and get you saved. <laughs> right? Am I making this up? This is, like, true. And there are other churches, there are other churches in America where if you're just, like, perpetually poor, you know, the kind of thing is, what is your problem? Why are you so lazy? Why can't you just work? One of the great things about the, the Great Recession has been that in a lot of, especially baby boomer churches, these guys who did so well for the lion's share of their life, you know, got laid off or whatnot, and now they can't get a job. And all of a sudden now the, the fact that the system might be rigged is like, you know, the system's rigged. They weren't saying that a decade ago, but, you know, now they're like, the system's rigged. We need to do something. And all the perpetually poor people were like, yeah, we've been trying to tell you. <laughs> okay. Philip Yancey puts it this way. Uh, we have this tendency in the church, and he says, quote, you find a group to look down on, to feel more spiritual than, and you talk about them behind their backs. <laughs> Judging and condemning. It, it, it is the funniest thing, and we do it so quickly, and we do it so readily, not just for individuals, but entire groups of people. When, when I started out in the ministry, um, one of my mentors was a man by the name of Charles Lake. And Charles, uh, one of the little coaching sessions he had with me, he laid out this thing, and he said, 
Now, I want to tell you, I want to warn you about something that's going to happen as a pastor. I'm like, okay, you know, I've got, let me get my pencil. Okay, I'm ready, Charles, tell me. And he goes, you're going to get people who show up. You're going to get a couple who shows up, and they're going to talk really badly about the previous pastor. And they're going to just totally lay into that pastor and what a horrible person he was and how the church mistreated them and da-da-da-da-da. And, and your, your temptation is going to take be to, to listen to that and go, holy cow, that guy should be defrocked. That church should be put out of business. That's terrible. How could somebody do that? And he says, be patient, reserve judgment, because at the end of the day, there's a good chance that two years down the road, the story's going to be the same. The only thing that's going to be different is that now they're going to be using your name in the name of your church. And I was like, no. And then the first time it happened at Church of the Savior, I was like, oh. He is a Jedi master, you know. <laughs> he is a Jedi master, Charles. Okay, so there, there's something. There is something about um, uh, there's something about being religious, especially that can lead you to this mindset that if you believe the, I believe the right things, I do the right things. You don't believe the right things. You don't do the right things. And and I know I know what it is to to condemn someone else. And I know what it is to be condemned myself. Um, in the early days, uh, when Jenny and I were married, in my mind and in my heart, I judged Pastor Ellsworth a lot. I did. You know, I was like, he's too stuffy. His wife wears too much makeup. They act too rich. I mean, I had a whole list of why he was like a loser pastor. And I judged him. Uh, and now looking back, so unfairly. Um, and I've been on the receiving end. Um, when I stepped out of a ministry role at Church of the Savior, the, the person that came in after me in that ministry role believed that I didn't believe the Bible and that I didn't know what I was doing with kids and why I had any business working with children. He couldn't figure out because, you know, good gravy. And I was like, ow. You know, because, right, when you're on the receiving end of condemnation, can we all agree, it hurts, doesn't it? You're kind of like, could you, like, take that arrow out and when you're doing so, not twist it, <laughs> please? Okay? Jesus dealt with religious people. He dealt with religious people. And there are always religious people around. I have a name for them, and I call them the God Squad. And if you've been around generations any length of time, you've heard me talk about the God Squad. So in every time and every era, there's a God Squad. And the God Squad is confident that they speak for God. They have God figured out. This is the way God wants everyone to roll. Roll this way, not that way. They believe the right things. They do the right things. And so they're kind of the protectorate for everyone else. <gasps> You're not doing the right thing. Get with the program. Um, and so the God squad kind of rolls that way. And again, I believe there's a God squad in every era, in every century. Sometimes they're Christians. Sometimes they're Jewish. I mean, it just, and, and they're around. In the first century, they actually had a name, and they were called the Pharisees. Yes, you're familiar with them, the God Squad called the Pharisees. So we're going to be in the Gospel of John, John chapter 8 today. So if you brought a Bible, I'd love you to flip there with me, John chapter 8. Now a little bit about this particular passage. I've been preaching a while, I've been a pastor a while. This is the first time I've ever preached from this passage. And I probably won't preach again from it, probably till close to retirement. Part of that is because, I don't know in your Bible, in my Bible it says this, the most ancient Greek manuscripts do not include John 7, 53 through 8, 11. In other words, most scholars now don't think that this was in the original Gospel of John. But I've actually done extensive research on this, and this is what I've come to conclude um, by reading what the scholars have to say. 
even though it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts, it probably actually happened because it, it, and most scholars think it was one of Luke's kind of stories that he collected about Jesus. And for whatever reason, Luke decided not to include it in his gospel. Um, but it's included in the Didascalia and some other things. So those of you that are geeking out right now, you know, you're welcome. But all that is to say, you know, there's some a little bit of eh about whether or not it was in the earliest parts. But it totally amplifies something that we see in the Gospels, and especially something in, we see in Jesus. And it highlights something that I want to draw out today. And so John chapter 8, and uh, let's just get going through it, all right? And I'll put the verses up here. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. And as he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Now, a little bit of the context here. Jesus is teaching in the temple courts, in the outer courts, and, he's, and, and so he's doing what rabbis would have done in this time period in Jerusalem. At night, he's going up the hill to a little town called Bethany that's about a mile and a half down the road, and he's spending the night at his friend's house, uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. You'll read a lot about them in some of the other Gospels, right? So he's spending his nights there and his evenings there, and then he's coming down during the day, and he's teaching in the temple. Now, at this point, right, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he's back into the temple. A crowd soon gathered. He sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They placed her in front of the crowd. So I want you to imagine for a minute you were this poor woman, who, and she was caught in the act. So she couldn't have been that well-dressed, right? And she's there, and all the eyes are on her. Scarlet letter A on her, you know, bosom, so to speak. She did the big, horrible sin that's not a sin you're supposed to do. <gasps> and so they bring her to Jesus. Now, there's some things that are going on that you may not know uh, that I want to draw out for you. One is, how many people does it take to, like, commit adultery? All right, let me ask that again. How many people does it take to commit adultery? At least two. <laughs> At least two, okay? So, so, where's the guy? Did you notice that? Did you notice that? Where... Where is he? Where'd he go? Did, did you catch the whole, she was caught in the act of adultery? Did you know that the Old Testament's very specific? If two people are committing adultery, both of them are supposed to get punished? Did you know that? I know, it's like, where is the guy? I would like to suggest to you that in 2,000 years, not much has changed. If you go to the typical college campus today, there's a word for a girl that gives her, right? It's... It starts with an S. Is there an equal word for boys who do that? No. <laughs> no. 2,000 years, not much has changed. Okay, so the man gets off and is allowed to escape, and they bring the woman. And so 
the fact that they are going to Jesus and they're asking that she be stoned. So let's get into this. Verse 4. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Now, actually, uh, if, if the two people had been caught in adultery, um, stoning wasn't the thing that was actually prescribed. The fact that it's stoning leads a lot of the scholars to think that this was an engaged couple who just couldn't wait, right? So they're betrothed to each other. They were caught doing it, and she's hauled out to be stoned, all right? And he's left to be, he, he was allowed to get away. And so by bringing her to Jesus, they're not concerned about her. They're not concerned so much about her violation of the law, because if they were, they would have brought both of them. This is so that they can trap Jesus, because if Jesus says, yeah, stoner, then he gets in trouble with the Roman authorities, because they're the only ones who can execute someone. And if he says, no, let her off, then he's guilty of not honoring the Mosaic law. And what kind of rabbi is he? (gasps) Um, you don't believe the right things. Okay, so it's meant to be a trap in every form and fashion. So, verse 6, they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stopped, stooped down again and wrote in the dust. Now, tradition says that Jesus wrote one of two passages in the dust. Um, This one, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who turn away from you will be disgraced. They will be buried in the dust of the earth, for they have abandoned the Lord. That's from Jeremiah. The other one that tradition says he wrote in the ground was, You must not pass along false rumors. You must not cooperate with evil people by lying on the witness stand. But nobody knows. Nobody knows, right? Think about it. It's a big brouhaha. It interrupts his teaching. He's teaching there in the courts. They bring the woman, scantily dressed in all likelihood. Hey, boom, rabbi, caught her, guilty. What are you going to do? And instead of interfacing with them right away, he stoops down and he starts writing. What on earth? Wouldn't you? I would pay like big money to know what he wrote in the ground. What was he writing? You know what I think he was writing? I think he was writing the names of women that the men in the crowd would have recognized. The grown-ups caught it first. The teenagers are now on board. Yes. (laughs) I think he was writing the names of women in the dust that, oh, Shirlene, (laughs) you know, okay? You can, but nobody knows. That's conjecture on my part. I should put that in full disclosure. But there's something about his stooping and writing and delay, and then he makes the statement, let one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Well, look at how it plays out, verse 9. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. 
Judgment without compassion is not the way of Jesus' kingdom. Judgment without compassion is not the way of Jesus' kingdom. And you and I reject Jesus in his way when we condemn others. Dallas Willard writes this. He says, The decision to step aside from condemnation, to neither give it or receive it, is a major turning point in one's life. Let me read that again. The decision to step aside from condemnation, to neither give it nor receive it, is a major turning point in one's life. I I so get now, at age 45, why the older people slipped away first. I always used to laugh at the older people would say, you know, the older you get, if you're in tune with Jesus in any shape, form, or fashion, you get humbler as you get older. I would no more sit at a table today and talk about how bad lawyers are (laughs) than I would to have you pull my teeth without anesthesia. (laughs) Okay? I, I get that. So, in in light of this passage, in light of what Jesus does and how he responds to her, let me ask some questions. And, And the first question I would ask you to ask of yourself is, who do I hold in contempt right now? Is there someone in my life right now that the fact that I have a stone, nobody can see it, but boy, it's got their name written on it. And if I just had the opportunity, boy, I'd let them have it. Who in my life do I hold in contempt right now? Who in my life is unfit, unworthy, or lacking? Now, there's more than one way to stone someone. And so in the context of where you spend the most amount of your time, whether it's school or work or home or Facebook, how do people these days throw stones at one another? Yeah, words. How do people these days throw stones at one another? And is And is that something that you really want to have a hand in? And and another question, an evaluative question, a question of reflection is, do those around me feel loved or do they feel condemned? And so I I asked you to get a stone today, and so you have a stone, all right? And it may be targeted for someone, it may be, but... In a moment, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite you to come up. If, if, you don't, if you're without sin, if you've lived your life without condemning anybody, you just slip that in your pocket, we're good. No problem. Take it with you. You're, you're free and clear. But if, like me, you've judged unfairly, you've condemned, then I'm going to invite you, after I pray, to come leave this stone, to literally lay down your stone, and in effect say to Jesus, you know what? I need your grace and forgiveness. And as you give me grace and forgiveness, I will in turn give others grace and forgiveness, not condemnation. So I want to pray for you and me. God, I think of all the ways in which I have judged unfairly other pastors, Christians, non-Christians, community leaders. And when push comes to shove, when my life is in the crosshairs, so to speak, what do I cry out to you? God, have mercy on me. So God, I I pray that we as a community of faith, that we would lay down our stones and that we would refuse to not just give condemnation but receive it. That we would be free of condemnation. 
and that you would do this marvelous work in us because of how you roll and who you are. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So right now, you have an opportunity to literally lay down your stone. There's a story that's widely circulated about Robert Schuller, right? There's a story widely circulated about Robert Schuller. Robert Schuller is the Mr. Positive Thinking guy from California, the Hour of Power guy. Um, and once he was invited to speak in an African-American church in the Deep South on the anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. And when he got to the pulpit, and this is an African-American church, so the pulpit is high and lifted up with the thrones behind it and the table in front of it and the ginormous Bible laid out. And he got behind that pulpit and he was overwhelmed by some of the own bigotry he had when he was a young man. And some of the things that had played out in churches in his lifetime. And he just started to weep there at the pulpit. And he, and, and, and he tried to, you know, get going, and he tried to get into his message, and he couldn't. He just was weeping there like a baby at this pulpit. And before too long, the pastor of the church who was sitting behind him in one of the big throne chairs, got a little teary-eyed himself. And the man stood up, walked over to, to Robert Schuler, put his arm around him, crying now himself, and said, Dr. Schuler, in this church, no one weeps alone. That's compassion. That's compassion. In my own life, um, when I was uh, the children's pastor and executive pastor at Church of the Savior, there were so many times when I would uh, lay into my senior pastor about some aspect of his personality or leadership. And I at least did good leadership practices. So the way it worked was I didn't tell my wife or other people, you know, all the things that I was, like, gunning for him about. I went and told him. And we would have, you know, we would have these conversations, and he'd politely listen to me and and would be like, you know, you should turn left. I don't know why you're turning left. This is, you know, it's, it's not rocket science. Just turn left. And it, well, you know, da-da-da-da. And so back and forth we'd go. And it was the, it was the oddest thing. Um, and so I, the irony today is that when I get together with him, when we have, uh, we'll about once every three months, we'll get together at Bob Evans. <clears throat> That's where us old people like to eat. <laughs> You'll get there someday. Someday you'll turn 40 and you'll be like, where do you want to go? <clears throat> I want to go to Bob Evans. It's going to happen. Just, to, just plan for it now, okay? So <clears throat> we have some of the sweetest times now. I so look forward when I get to have breakfast with him. I do. I love him more today than I ever have. I respect him more today than I ever have. And I have to think that in part that's the work of God in my life where I've laid down, so to speak, my willingness and readiness to judge and condemn. Um, and so I want to invite you in your life, whether it's your husband, your wife, your kids, I know there are people that aren't hitting the ball, that maybe like the woman caught in adultery, they've done something that's just horrific. But here's what I've learned, and this is why I think Jesus rolled the way he did. When, when you and I have our stone and somebody's guilty and we 
Nine times out of ten, they don't repent, do they? The, th the throwing of the stone only hardens the heart. The Bible says a wise man looks at correction and thanks you for it. But let's be honest, how many of us are truly that wise? <laughs> okay? It's only when we set down the stones that there's the opportunity for repentance, for renewal, for walking out the life of grace and faith that Jesus calls us for. And I hope that in this community, our church family will be known as a place that lays down its stones. I really do.